Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Connor Keniston, one of the hosts of this channel, and I'm really looking forward to today's interview. Our guest is Josh Shepard. Josh is here to discuss his excellent new book titled Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2023. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Josh, I'd love to be able to start off today's interview by learning a little bit more about you. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about you and your your backstory? Yeah, I'm an assistant professor uh, of media studies at the University of Colorado. And I also work with the Library of Congress. Uh, I design public projects for them connected to sound history. And I work with the National Recording Preservation Board, as well as the Recorded Sound section. And I carry the um, intended pun title of Sound Fellow uh, of the National Recording Preservation Board. It's um, literally false, but uh, metaphorically true, or maybe the reverse. I I got my start in philosophy, and I studied continental philosophy um, with the translators of like Heidegger and Derrida. And I spent a lot of years just reading ideas. And at some point I pivoted to uh, intellectual and policy history. And one of the interesting parts of uh, that mode of study is seeing the way that concepts can translate into institutional and material practices, which is kind of the character of the book. It's it's a way of uh, thinking through some of the questions I had been occupied with for a long time uh, but in very empirical and tangible ways based upon evidence trails. Yeah, that's that's fascinating and, and leads us into sort of the next question, which was, how did you come to write Shadow of the New Deal? So you've already started uh, talking about that a little bit, but I wonder if you could walk us through that process uh, even more. How did, how did, how did uh, this get, get published? Uh, so I had a great advisor in grad school, uh, now retired, named Michelle Hilmes. Uh, who has been called the Dean of Radio Studies uh, in some parts of the field. And she had pointed me to uh, a collection at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research, where I did my graduate work. And it was a group called the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. And uh, it was kind of a minorly studied but understudied yet very vast archive, uh, many, many, many cubic feet, that looked at what seemed to be early educational broadcasting. And uh, the more that you dig into the collection, you see that it was actually more of a um, institutional plethora of kinds of mobilization for access to education uh, that went across policy, uh, modes of academic research, uh, just material practice of broadcasting, um, different kinds of lobby. Uh, and uh, the archive was just so big uh, 
um, that uh, it, it deserved a kind of deep dive that consequently results in the origins of public media. So one of the outcomes of uh, the works, uh, the group's work between uh, the 1920s and 1960s was that all of these different functions of the National Association of Educational Broadcasters uh, had spread across multiple sectors that eventually became a federal service. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 fascinating, and and also, you know, uh, University of Wisconsin and sort of Wisconsin as a place ends up playing uh, such a big role in in the in the book as well. So it's interesting that that was sort of your your start into it as, as well. Um, so before we get too far, uh, I'd love for you to say a little bit about uh, public media. Like, what is public? media, what does that term mean? And maybe where does it come from? Yeah, so what is public media? So there's a a nice international network of research on public service media. And public service media could really refer to, I think, three or four types of approaches to nonprofit media, media that does not have a commercial approach or an advertising approach. So probably the worst one is state-based media, in which it's a propaganda wing of the government. And we see examples of that around the world. Um, Then there's something like community media. And community media tends to be more decentralized. Uh, It has better access within a geographic location uh, by the members of the community to kind of do whatever they want. And sometimes it's like amazing and becomes this documentary evidence of a place and a time and activism. And then other times it, uh, you know, is more messy and that's part of the fun of it. (laughs) So I'm a big fan of community media. Uh, And then you have uh, educational media, which is sort of uh, extension services and distance learning practices through technology. And that's, I argue, the grounds for the fourth type, which would be public media. And public media is unique uh, amongst public service media approaches uh, because it's a, a government agency or service that has a degree of separation from government. And its purpose is ostensibly to educate, uh, but what it seems to do more of is serve as a barometer through journalism of a kind of diversity of different voices and uh, political perspectives that are palatable to a listenership who are attuned to um, uh, different mandates and policies and experiences that are already accepted within mass culture. So I think public media, which is often framed as a leftist project or something like that, and and I hope in some ways my book actually points to it, that it was a liberal progressive project at some point um, before it was public media. Uh, But what public media tends to do is it serves as an official voice of a kind of experience Uh, without being fully instrumentalized by government interests themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is very cool. I, I, uh, and helpful, uh, for understanding, you know, such a, a term that 
<laughs> many of us are, are used to, but hadn't uh, really, or at least speaking for me, hadn't really thought that concretely about that term. And then to see, you know, it show up the sort of first time that public broadcasting gets used uh, as a term in, in your book was, was really fascinating. Uh, so you, you started to touch on this a little earlier, but uh, one of the things that I was surprised to learn while reading your book was about the relationship between early public media and compulsory state education. Could, could you say a little bit more about that relationship between early public media and education? Yeah, there's a, a kind of advocacy within the book that educational studies and educational history and media studies and media history uh, actually have a symbiotic relationship historically, at least until the 1960s. And so what you see with public education is that compulsory education, which refers to that you have to go to school to a certain age, like we all get that now, wasn't always true, uh, emerges in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, is not completed as an official policy until the 19 aughts, into the early 19-teens or so. Uh, and it's a state-based mandate, typically, um, at that time. And they're searching for ways that everyone can access education uh, and have a shared education that does really two things. Uh, one, give equal possibility towards training, um, which, as we know, is full of contradictory sentiments and implementations, um, but also um, have an opportunity to uh, be acclimated to a kind of labor and a kind of labor mentality that comes with curriculum. And so uh, early education uh, and compulsory education uh, has this, what we might think of as a virtuous or progressive dimension to it that the right still hates, which is that everyone should have equal access to education uh, through facilities. There has to be a house, there has to be textbooks, there has to be a teacher on site. These are facilities and logistical questions. And then the other side of it, of course, is ideological. And the ideo ideological side is that there's a way to be educated and there's whose education that's at stake. There's like the hidden curriculum, as we call it, by which social acculturation um, becomes central to curriculum development. So, you know, with compulsory education, uh, there's all these strategies that begin to be implemented uh, about how to uh, attract people to educational sites. So you think of playgrounds, we take that for granted, but that was a strategy uh, for public gathering at one point uh, when they started building those. Or you think of the invention of mass pencils. Pencils was a technology of education. Uh, they weren't widely available and so cheap, they had to be developed in there. And with media, you see the technologies for film and media emerge, uh, film and radio emerge roughly at the same time, 1890s, early 1900s. And radio takes on a completely different veneer than uh, films and early actualities and the kind of documentary evidence and Edison films we see. <clears throat> radio is immediately a point of ship communication. Uh, it's a tool of like Western Union. Uh, it's a wireless telegraph. And it's almost never a theatrical medium at its beginning. It's a, mo a mode of communication. It's a strategy of communication. And when you get to 
uh, radio as a broadcasting model, which in its very early days begins to be imagined after 1912. Uh, and then by the 1920s, 1921, 22, it becomes a model and the dominant model. Uh, you, you see that like the ideologies uh, and the logistical practices of education be inscribed upon early distance learning initiatives that are coming out of universities. So there's something called the Wisconsin idea that some people have heard of. And, and all that meant was that the university at the time thought that everyone in the state should have equal access to the services of the school and that that was like the function of education and higher education and its relationship to curriculum and state bureaucracies around compulsory education. But it also becomes a kind of progressive call that everyone is equal and that it's a right to have educational access. So there's all these things going on at the same time and distance learning out of universities as it relates to what at the time they called adult education, which was really 16 year olds, just for the record in the farmlands up in Wisconsin where I went to school. Um, so the, the notion that there's an adult education necessity that people have to work, but they still deserve education was nearly impossible to implement at that moment because let's say you're in Madison, Wisconsin, but then there's a city called Baraboo, you know, that's about, I don't know, 35 miles north or 40 miles north. There's no way to get back and forth to school, even for evening classes when it's horse and buggy times. <laughs> And so this radio, so that's where radio comes in. And radio is suddenly seen as this extension of these technologies of compulsory education that can then reach every point of the population, especially in agrarian culture. Uh, and then to another extent, there was the segregation of immigrant culture as part of the progressive era. And people didn't necessarily want to interact in their own communities with people who they felt were a part of their communities, but they wanted them to at least be prepared to work together on assembly lines and Taylorism or Fordism. And so there was this uh, utility to the idea that there could be uh, a mediated access point that doesn't change social access points. So there's a paternalism there too that we have to take seriously. Um, so when we get compulsory education and early educational radio, <clears throat> educational radio emerges as this extension service of educational discourses, uh, but it's very loyal to the public education concept that everyone should have equal access without having to pay to curriculum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really put those pieces together about the ways that uh, that sort of equal access through that technology plays out. And uh, yeah, I thought that was a, such an interesting groundwork for sort of uh, sort of your project. Um, so much of the book, you know, the Communications Act of 1934 plays a major role in your book. And even though much of your, uh, much of the book is actually sort of after the Communications Act of 1934, it's clear that it plays a, you know, surprising yet <laughs> pivotal role uh, in the development of public broadcasting. So could you tell us a little bit about just what was the Communications Act of 1934 and what were some of its uh, surprising yet pivotal, pivotal uh, long-term impacts? Yeah, so the Communications Act of 34 is 
the crucial American media policy by which all future policies would be addenda or pursuant to. And there's a little bit of backstory there. Uh, the first is when you get to the early 20s with universities, um, they begin to develop genres of radio that emulate classroom practices. And they're closer to instruction than educational entertainment or journalism or interviews. And so you get like what they would have called home economics programming, which would be cooking shows now and, and public media. You know, you get um, you learn about world history, but those became travel shows in public media. But you get the emergence of public media genres in early educational media um, and, and all these experiments around classroom services. So the thing about it is that it was terrible. <laughs> they were not good at the actual art or craft of radio broadcasting, which is its own practice and has its own conventions that relate to technology and uh, the way that we talk to each other conversationally and all these kind of things. They simply lectured into a mic and they didn't really understand the equipment. They wouldn't broadcast at the same times. So people didn't know when to tune in. And at, uh, at the same time, you have this amazing moment where, um, uh, NBC Red and Blue, uh, Red was in uh, New York and uh, Blue was in New Jersey, uh, are networked through AT&T wires because uh, RCA owned both. And it's reaching and growing to all the parts of the country. And the proximity to vaudeville and Tin Pan Alley performers immediately brings these amazing performers who figure out how to use the mic and figure out how to keep people attuned to what they're uh, listening to. And so uh, in the 20s, uh, we have like RCA, early CBS, and they own the infrastructure. They have the talent, people like the broadcasts. And then you have the educators, which have this really strong concept of the good of, um, you know, reaching every student and adult learners. Uh, but they have no idea how to use the equipment. They're underfunded. Um, they're not popular with the universities. They often don't have uh, higher degrees. Uh, the practitioners don't. Uh, and then a lot of them came out of engineering and physics departments who were simply interested in the radio waves and how they worked, but not in the craft. So uh, by the late 1920s, they begin to regulate at, at the national level. Uh, what do we do with this new medium that's a communication medium, less than an entertainment medium, yet the entertainers know how to use it better. And uh, there's a guy named Robert McChesney who wrote a pretty crucial book uh, called Telecommunications, Mass Media and Democracy. And this book in some ways is a sequel to his book. It's in his series too at University of Illinois Press. Uh, and he points to by 1927, the relative ease of just turning things over to commercial broadcasters, and by things I mean infrastructure, the whole American infrastructure, um, leads to certain regulations that are informed by uh, libertarian era ideologies um, that don't want to emulate what was emerging in the BBC or other parts of Europe at the same time. So I, I won't dig too deeply into that because uh, it's quite detailed, but uh, a series of policies in 27, 28, uh, some failed counterproposals in the early 30s by educators to preserve different aspects of radio frequencies for educational use lead to uh, the 1934 Act. And the 34 Act defines uh, media ownership 
and this is the crucial part, who controls the division of labor, right? Uh, it, it defines ownership as public interest, um, convenience, and necessity. And uh, this is the most preposterous part that media historians, I think, still reel from. It defines diversity in terms of the capacity for different conglomerates and corporations to also own wires and access. But there's no concept of public service or education within the regulation. And it wasn't totally purposive is something that I uh, found. It's not that they were trying to block out educators as much as educators that didn't have it together, um, number one. And the second, and this is really crucial to understanding most media history until the early 1950s, is that there was something we would call frequency scarcity. So there were only a limited number of channels per location, and they were all AM at the time. So uh, this is, I think, the sort of secret recipe for understanding why certain decisions are made if we're going to take a critical angle on history is that there was an advocacy to fill uh, limited opportunities, and then there was a head start that was taken by the corporations because they had discovered ways to turn radio into something profitable, and people actually wanted to listen to it. So what happens with uh, the Communications Act, uh, and this has been written about uh, by uh, quite a few of my excellent colleagues, uh, Victor Picard at Penn, uh, Allison Perlman at Irvine, and uh, other colleagues, Susan Smullyan at Brown. Uh, and they've all uh, correctly pointed to how the entire American system begins to pivot towards this commercial logic. It's not just that there's an ownership that's given an ownership like monopoly that's given to corporations because they owned the infrastructure. Uh, it's also that there's a mentality about advertising broadcasting as serving as a default public. And this is, I think, a huge ideological problem. And I'm not, I love commercial media stuff. I watch HBO, right? You know, I listen to old, um, they call it OTR, old-time radio, old-time radio broadcasts, and they're very entertaining. I love vaudeville and Pipper McGee and Molly and all that kind of stuff. But how the logic ends up that democracy is better served through a limited number of access points controlled by just a few corporations is a ridiculous outcome to the, to the history. And so what happens at the end of McChesney's book is that he points out that educators, when they had to reapply for their licenses after the act, there's about 1,500 reapplications um, that took place from everything from religious groups to uh, school districts to universities, is that the new rules of public interest made it impossible in the experimental phase of education to actually compete. And they all lost their licenses. So I've written about this a couple different places. Um, I, at some points in the literature, the primary document literature, it looks like up to 85% of educational broadcasters lost their licenses. For the book, I settle on a number 70%. And it's hard to track it exactly because not everyone who lost their licenses would qualify as education, which is its own tedious subject to discuss. So it depends how you qualify it uh, to get the number. But it, uh, really catastrophically, we lose educational access practices in 1934, um, and the entire sector of education has to regroup. Yeah. So could you tell us how does media reform shift? Like, how is it different both before and after 
the Communications Act. Yeah, so what McChesney does in his book, uh, which I think is clever, is he points to kind of like gradients of reform activity before the act. He points to groups that are um, uh, working with corporations and educators and the government to try to find a middle ground. He looks at groups that uh, rhetorically were simply against commercial media, uh, groups that were also um, trying to carve out that what they would call protected frequencies. And there were actually um, pretty high level uh, actors trying to figure out how to save education from itself in this early period. And so you have like the commissioner of education of the United States working with the Carnegie Corporation um, and even parts of the military. And they're trying to find a lobby by which future regulation can simply um, serve the purposes of education in the ways that I described. And the groups kind of come, these trade groups come out of that. uh, And there was something called uh, the um, Wagner-Hatfield Act that actually proposed a certain percentage of educational frequencies to be just preserved uh, in in the early 30s. That fails. And uh, what McChesney looks at essentially are the failures between 27 and 34 until we have the act. Uh, And they did. They repeatedly could not persuade um, uh, congressmen and senators through lobby. And at the same time, uh, they weren't providing a strong alternative that formulated a different vision that could be self-sustainable. Um, so what, what we have uh, it, right after the act uh, is this moment in which uh, they had really uh, defined the landscape at the federal level and the FCC is created by the act. So it's hard to accuse the FCC of uh, implementing the policies in which it was formed in its first year as an ideological project. And uh, But the FRC, the Federal Radio uh, Council before that, uh, which started in 27, uh, does seem to be very commercial friendly and was not uh, necessarily a strong proponent of the equal access to education model. Yeah, yeah. So, what were some of the, uh, what were some of the reform groups that are operating in this period? You know, one of the things I, I loved about the book is it's not a story of oh, one individual or one single organization sort of was the movement, but is more of a conglomeration of a, a lot of different folks. Um, so, uh, could you tell us about uh, one of these sort of major organizations that are working to uh, shape the history of public media, uh, sort of these reform organizations in the years after the Communications Act? Right. So what the book does uh, is it takes a look at some of the groups that are mentioned in McChesney's book, and then it asks, what did they do after the act? Uh, so after the defeat of educational broadcasting with all of uh, the buildup to it, what then happens. And this had really not been covered by the literature uh, to this point. And it was interesting to me to just go back in those archives, which uh, held up very strongly with McChesney's assessment uh, pre-34. But then something fascinating begins to happen. So there's two major groups uh, that we see, and then a third group uh, that emerges that leads to the fourth group. And So what are those groups? I'll I'll name them. So there's uh, first Uh, Carnegie mandates something called the National Advisory Council on Radio and Education. And it's a guy named Levering Tyson. 
And McChesney hates this guy. <laughs> it's like he's like the Menshevik to the Bolsheviks. And then he's just giving things to the commercial broadcasters. And he's gotten kind of gotten this bad name, I think, in media history because of that book. So I'll put that name out there. And then there's the National Committee for Education by Radio which was um, out of Ohio and funded by the Payne Fund, which also is probably more well-known for its funding of film research uh, in the 1930s. And the Payne Fund was somewhere between like uh, a conservative moralist group that thought education was a corrective to excesses in commercial media, and then a progressive group that wanted the equal access to education. It was kind of both. It had that sort of um, conservative, culturally conservative edge uh, while um, uh, bureaucratically progressive approach uh, is that so so that's the other group and NCER was very aggressive uh, at trying to get these protected frequencies uh, put into place and they really they wrote a lot of early literature that we would now associate with the foundations of political economy of media research which is what is media for how does it serve democracy. Um, And and they're just advocating strongly and and pretty persuasively when you look at their internal correspondence um, in terms of um, like the concept. They help to like formulate a concept of what non-commercial media means in this country. All right. So then there's a third group uh, that I look at in the book, which is the Federal Radio Education Committee, which is formed after 34 in a partnership between the Office of Education and its new director, which was John Studebaker. And then the FCC, the new FCC. And so they're both wondering, how can we get schools access to the airwaves again? And what they do is they set up a clearinghouse-like structure by 1935. So immediately after the act, they're um, trying to develop uh, the possibilities for a conversation about what education would need to do under the new Communications Act policy to regain some of the licenses And they attract pretty much everyone. So a few representatives of grassroots broadcasters, uh, members of the NCER and NACRE is there. And then also um, uh, the commercial stations, NBC and CBS send representatives. um, The Department of Agriculture sends representatives. And they're all kind of working on it over 1936 and 1937. And at the same time, you have this very first group which was the Association of College and University Broadcasters, or ACUBS, which then changes its name in 34 to the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, which is the group that built NPR and PBS later. Okay, so that's the playing field. You have these groups. And between 34 and 1940, um, a few things happen. So the NCER says, okay, we've been advocating on behalf of the National Education Association, Carnegie, Payne, Office of Education, and it's not changing the policies. So rhetorically, we're not doing the job. So simply lobbying alone isn't getting the job done. Uh, And then you see the NACRE and uh, Levering Tyson and what I'm reading is the classic guy pulling out his hair, trying to just line everyone up to like they all everyone kind of agrees that education is important, but everyone wants to fight over the scarcity of the AM channels. And he gets appointed in by FREC, FRA, the Federal Radio Education Committee, to oversee research uh, around this topic. All right. So NCER is saying, what are we going to do next? Tyson is trying to set up research around it through FREC and the NAEB have lost all these channels 
And they kind of almost go dormant for a while, for about 10 years, I would say. They're just kind of like, now what do we do? And they're regrouping. And NCER says, here's what we're going to do. Instead of simply lobbying, we're going to set up an alternative educational network. And so they go out to the Rocky Mountains, where I, where I live now, and uh, out of the University of Wyoming, one of its members and its chair uh, of the project in 1936, A.G. Crane, who happens to be the president of, at Wyoming, um, sets up the Rocky Mountain Radio Council. And of course, the Rockies are the epitome of a need for discovery about how to circulate radio because the mountains will block the radio signals. You can't just broadcast from one point. So they set up two approaches. Uh, the first is what we call program transcriptions, and program transcriptions are essentially record pressings, the pressing records. And the other is shortwave relay through the mountains. And to this day, I mean, you go you know, 10, 15 minutes just west of Boulder, and it's pretty rural up there in the mountains and beautiful. Uh, but uh, imagine what it was like, you know, in 19, you know, 35, 36, with very little in the way of technology or wiring into the mountains, into these towns uh, that are largely miners and miners' families. Um, you know, 2,000 people, 600 people, you know, 3,000 people. So, uh, and he starts setting up this network. And what does he call it? He calls it the Public Broadcasting Service or like PBS now, or he calls it public radio. And he gives it all these different nomenclatures uh, that essentially uh, were dominant in the 30s because of him and then disappear and then reemerge in the 60s out of that. So why does he call it public? He, it's actually a play on the concept of public service, public education, and the public interest mandate. And his concept is that, okay, we have this word public, but what if public didn't mean public interest but what if it followed the rules of the public interest mandate of the act? And so he's essentially replicating the uh, commercial broadcasting approaches to networking technology and broadcasting, uh, but with a nonprofit goal. And that's the origin of the term uh, public media. And so, and this gets, I get uh, with Levering Tyson, it gets even stranger uh, because he, he's largely well-connected but unsuccessful lobbyist uh, with the NACRE, but in his position uh, on uh, the uh, FREC boards, he's allowed to greenlight projects that he thinks were necessary but weren't implemented before 1934. And so he starts to persuade philanthropic groups to fund different uh, experiments and this is where the Rockefeller Foundation steps in, who becomes the great champion of non-commercial media till the 1950s when the Ford Foundation steps in. Uh, and it's also the origins of philanthropic funding of public media in this country. So Tyson inspires the origins of the philanthropic nature of this service. And one of the things they want to fund besides just like, how do you use the microphone well? <laughs> like people, how do we teach people to just do good radio? Uh, is how do we know if it's working educationally or not? How do we know that educational broadcasting is actually educational? And so they fund this project, which they call Project 15, uh, that I'll come back to uh, in this conversation. And it becomes known as the Princeton Radio Research Project. Uh, and so Tyson, after all of the failures of non-commercial media, uh, 
kickstarts the possibility for mass communications and public policy research in the United States and later really for the world as, as a model. So the origins of communication departments begin with the failure of educators with the act and the attempted reboots uh, to try to problem solve about how to address the policy. Uh, and so the NAEB real quick, uh, they're just kind of like watching, watching and learning along the way. And eventually they'll be the last group standing and they'll absorb all of these innovations into their group uh, by the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. I, yeah, I, uh, will admit when, uh, you were writing or I was, as I was reading about how these educators were struggling to adapt to the new medium, I definitely felt like you were looking at me and lots of educators who during the pandemic, as we pivoted to zoom, were like, how do we, how do we use this new technology? Uh, and, and many of us, myself included, tried to just sort of stick with, uh, what we, what we'd known. And, and we see through, uh, through the research that was done of like, like you were saying, how to talk through a mic, but also what, what, you know, if education is achieving its goals and, and, and the research that has to go into that, I, I definitely was, was feeling some contemporary resonances in, in that section for sure. So could you say a little bit more about uh, the connection between the movement for educational radio and the emergence of communication studies. Uh, you mentioned that, but I, I just found that such a fascinating uh, connection I didn't know anything about. Yeah, so I, it part, there's a lot of ways to answer this. Um, and I think one of the ways that I hope this book will uh, like propose an intervention within the field is that we tend to silo uh, different 20th century emergences uh, within to disciplinary comportments. And there, what I have found is that there's no way to separate advocacy and research into non-commercial media in the U.S. and communications research, at least until the 1950s, mid-late 1950s. So uh, what you see in the 30s is an attempt to solve a problem. And the problem that they're trying to solve is how do we change a policy through the creation of evidentiary practices that can be triangulatable and reproducible across experiments regarding cognition of educational content. And if that was able to be proven, then they would be able to take that evidence towards pursuance to the act. So one of the pursuants that kind of inspires Freck, uh, which is number 307, <laughs> 307C, uh, was written by uh, an FCC member saying, look, you all just have to learn how to use radio. You can't just have the radio frequencies. You have to show us you know how to understand uh, transmitters. How does a transmitter work? You know, how far should your mouth be away from a microphone when you're talking so it's, there's no feedback? And then we'll consider some other kinds of amendments to the act. So that's one of the early pursuants that I write about in the book. Um, but, uh, you know, to get to a next step within policy changes, there needs to be kind of that technocratic infrastructural argument about necessity, that it actually serves a government agency or that it serves the interests of a state policy that's already in the books. So uh, one of the interesting turns here is one of the members of FREC was a guy named Hadley Cantrell, who was a young professor at Princeton who had just written a book with another guy named Gordon Alport on radio as just a tool of education. He had just written that book. 
And they put him on this committee with Levering Tyson. And the, he goes to uh, Tyson, Cantrell does, and says, I have an idea here, which is that I'm a social psychologist. That's what he was. And I've been looking at advertising analysis of audiences for demography. And it's too limited. They don't understand how audiences think. Their categories don't account for all the types of listeners. And I think I can actually make a better set of categories that would be of interest to everyone involved on FRAC, including the commercial broadcasters. And what I need is just some time and some money to investigate what he called techniques of understanding audiences. And so they think that's a good idea. And the board that he's on is called the Committee of Six. I don't know why. I couldn't find the evidence for why they called it that. But it's uh, people from CBS, the government, it's Levering Tyson, Princeton. And they say, okay, we're going to give you money through Rockefeller. This is going to be one of the big funded projects. Um, And so he goes back to Princeton and he starts to recruit other people working on demography. CBS says, okay, you can't do this unless you take one of our guys. And it's a guy named Frank Stanton. Frank Stanton goes on to be president of CBS not that long after this project. He's in his 20s at the time. Another guy named Paul Lazarsfeld is hired for the project and his wife, Herta Herzog. Uh, Paul Lazarsfeld goes on to found what we call communication studies, pretty much. There's some debate about that, but everyone points to him as one of the two or three founding figures. Herta Herzog uh, goes on to create survey research uh, with Robert Merton and others uh, for advertising in the sector. And all of their work is fomenting in 1937 of 1940. So what do they do? They sit down and they say, here's what we need. We need to expand demographic categories because we don't know if information is working unless we see that every learning style is being accounted for. It can't just be one learning style. So they say the only way to do that is to know all the possible listeners that are out there. So they really start to investigate the relationship between standardized curriculum practices for radio and classrooms, which is emerging at roughly the same time. Uh, And uh, so the first standardized tests are really being implemented around that time uh, and standardized formulaic practices of audience assessment, which has this like similar veneer to standardized testing for them at the time. That's no one's really written about that until more recently. So they sit down and they start to, uh, just expand the categories. And they say, instead of saying, here's four categories, like age, sex, geography, you know, that kind of thing. They say to the survey recipients, what categories would you place yourself in? And this thing happens in like literally one year, 37 to 38, where they just are able to refine all of these possibilities for all of these different demographic categories that had never been sociologically established yet through the synthesis of social psychology methods and advertising methods. And it's like this boon fermenting moment. Uh, And they come up uh, with a major discovery. And I think this is like really, really crucial for communication studies to understand about itself is that um, demography, early demography points to uh, the capacity to understand types that are not geographically bound. So someone who responds to something one way in Virginia um, who associates with 15 categories, you know, it doesn't matter what they are. And then someone in Montana who associates with the same 15 categories are more predictable in their behavior than people who simply all live in Montana together. 
And so that kind of triangulation that's not geographically based but embodiment based becomes the grounds for the next discovery, which is that once you understand which category a listener is in, educational or otherwise, you can begin to predict how they'll respond in repetition to different forms of stimuli that are either education or are you know, advertising, you know, other kinds of affective influences. And they begin to, what I write in the book, translate affective production of content you know, on media into effective, so the effects of the media upon interpretation and affiliation. And so by 1939 or so, they realized that, oh, this is way more um, combustible <laughs> of a methodology than simply for education. And they kind of like leave education. They're, they're like, okay, education is important. But what we have here is a tool for every possible government and corporate agency in the world. And this is also crucial, I think, for the field of communication to understand where it came from, to answer questions about itself to itself through quick research along demographic lines uh, amongst different groups that are responding to institutional decisions. Okay, so I'll make that simpler, uh, which is that most humanities are based in philosophies or cultural movements. Sciences are answering questions uh, that are uh, integral and triangulatable, but, you know, regarding questions like health or, you know, technology or engineering. Uh, Social sciences are answering questions on behalf of the institutions in the way that the institutions asked the questions. There's no base philosophy behind communication studies. It is a functional enterprise that was founded to answer policy questions. And along the way, they were able to do the same kind of um, reproducible formulaic questioning uh, on behalf of institutions to deal with people um, as, and, and just to get perspectives from people, uh, as the sciences are able to do with more substantive questions about hard science question, uh, approaches to whatever, you know, chemistry or physics or whatever. So, okay, so where am I going with this? Um, uh, the intellectual history of communications becomes intertwined with this reform attempt to expand equal access to education. It engenders these different research projects that hire these really strong thinkers, you know, in early social sciences. And along the way, they begin to actually invent different academic disciplines. So you have communications, early quantitative sociology, advertising research, and, and the triangulatable nature of early social sciences influences the Office of Education and related groups for standards for grant writing. So you have all of these connected groups working together that are developing standards for themselves at the same time to answer this question about a policy problem that along the way end up, um, you know, they're not, it's not like a, a sole cause. It's not a single cause question, but it, become, it becomes deeply participating within the emergencies of all of these human sciences and social sciences that then become the groundwork for standardization of all kinds of bureaucratic practices that we still have in the academy uh, at the same time. And here's the thing about it, and, and this is the part of the story that I love, there's two parts to this, is they say, well, we have to figure out a way to translate this into something people will understand 
um, if, if you even understood what I just said, <laughs> right, in the audience. Uh, and they're like, we need to like translate this into qualitative language. And they wouldn't have called it qualitative language at the time, but that's what we would call it now. So how do we translate quantitative into qualitative language? So they find this guy um, <laughs> through a series of personal networks named Theodore Adorno, uh, who needs to get out of Germany, uh, but also is just really good at kind of reform work. And they bring him over with the Rockefeller Foundation grant. And they say, Theo, uh, we have all these discoveries. They are so major. And can you write reports that we can then submit to the FCC and Office of Education? And he says, whatever. And he sits down with the quantitative research, which they're calling administrative research at that moment, because it's literally serving institutions administratively. And he says, you are alienating people from their embodiments by quantifying them into preset categories. Even if they're flexible, they're preset. And within these categories, you are dehumanizing people. And this can be utilized by different types of governments, such as the one I'm fleeing from in Germany, uh, in order to make instrumental decisions by asking questions that could be answered within the tautology of the question asked, (laughs) right? So it's like you've removed the human element to your research, and this is going to be a tool of institutions. It is not going to be a humanistic tool. And he says, I cannot sign on to a project like this, but I could help you reform the project. (laughs) So at the same time, something called War of the Worlds is broadcast on CBS radio, and they have CBS's main researcher, And CBS comes to Frank Stanton and is like, this crazy thing happened. People believed it. We made these minor aesthetic changes to broadcasting to resemble early modes of journalism genres. And everyone thought it was real. Could you check to see who believed it, how and why? And uh, they really consolidate. Hadley Cantrell puts his name on it and cuts out Paul Lazarsfeld. But he and Herta Herzog... But they really consolidate um, this necessity of the relationship between demographic categories and correlation as opposed to geography and correlation. People responded in certain ways. And it's immensely successful. And the government likes it. The OWI, uh, Office of War Information, eventually loves that report. Colonialist enterprises and propaganda (laughs) loves it. And uh, they just get rid of Adorno. They just fire him from the project because he won't play ball. And then one of the interesting outcomes of that uh, is that he kind of leaves reform advocacy for education completely, and they stick with it, and it becomes the foundation of communications research to work on these questions of education. So you have like the most critical researcher who won't work on it anymore, and it's just a critic of media. Uh, and I love Adorno, just for the record. I just want to say that. Uh, he abandons the, the equal access to education concept. And then, but the quantitative researchers of social sciences stick with it and build really one of the biggest enterprises of 20th century academia. It becomes one of the most influential and cross-sector projects um, after uh, World War II. Yeah. So uh, you've done a great job of laying out for us sort of how um, these reformers end up doing system building through, you know, finding funding sources, adjusting their content, developing these awesome uh, bicycle networks, uh, and then ultimately sort of the research and development. I, I wonder if you could uh, take us through uh, briefly uh, the, the next couple decades into the sort of 40s, 50s, and 60s, and ultimately sort of how this uh, system building leads to what you call the victory of public broadcasting. 
Yeah, so the the word victory was chosen uh, by the press uh, because of the story of educational broadcasting had always been of defeat and, and the, the end of educational media, which we found to be not exactly true because um, the same people in McChesney's book build public media, essentially, which is... So it's just a play on words. Um, yeah, so what happens is after the Princeton Radio Research Project... Uh, the NAEB is sitting there experimenting with forms of uh, what we call program transcriptions earlier with the Rocky Mountain Radio Council. And they're getting better and better at the broadcasting. They're just getting better at uh, implementing uh, curriculum in ways that audiences want to hear. And then FM appears. FM appears and the first channels for education are given in 1945. There's only like six of them or something, but it's clear that the frequency scarcity problem is alleviating. And then there's this new technology called television that's emerging. And that's what everyone wants because it's more interesting and it's more vibrant and there's more information at a given moment. So all the networks are starting to look at that instead of radio at the same time. And by the late 1940s, uh, the Princeton project dissolves, uh, I think around 1940 or 41, Paul Lazarsfeld uh, goes on to Columbia University very famously. Cadley Cantrell goes back to Princeton, and he ends up going to work with government doing, um, uh, I think, very damaging work in Latin America and South America in the propaganda wings, uh, which is too bad, I think, after that major early discovery. Uh, And then Freck dissolves, uh, I think, by the late 40s, but is dormant after the early 40s. And you see uh, all of these discoveries become institutionalized in ways that are derivative of these early experiments. And so by the late 1940s or so, uh, it's obvious you need to do audience research if you're going to make programming. And we call that research and development now. You know, with So the commercial industries are doing it. They're playing with it a little bit with educational broadcasters. Advertisers are doing it. Paul Lazarsfeld uh, engenders the entire field of advertising studies and the methods of that with survey research in the 40s. And so they're doing this, uh, you know, research in applied ways across institutions at that point. The educational broadcasters still want to have distance learning and instructional broadcasting. And they have these tools in hand from that post-34 moment. And around 1947, uh, a lot of these educational broadcasters had gone to work in the war with the military and in propaganda groups, and the military uh, implements some of these discoveries from the Princeton Project and other educational experiments, and they're successful. They're, they're actually, it speeds up learning uh, for like early uh, Army and Air Force stuff. Uh, there's all these documents at University of Maryland about that. So let's say you had to learn how to fix a part of a plane. Well, they found it was significantly faster to learn how to do that through educational film footage uh, than it was, uh, you know, through um, just classroom learning. And so what happens is media education turns out to be a faster way to learn in more locations. It's, it's sort of that simple. Expertise can be spread. So about 47 or so, everyone comes back from the war and University of Illinois builds the first communications department. And that uh, is founded by a guy named Wilbur Schramm, who many listeners have probably heard of. And he was the founder of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which is super fascinating, goes to work with propaganda and the OWI with Harold Laswell 
in World War II and is essentially point, appointed by people like Lazarsfeld and the government to build a communications program to study media, uh, largely through quantitative research in 1947. And then he hires other forms of policy analysts, which we now call political economy of media. And the most famous one's a guy named Dallas Smythe, uh, who gets hired there um, and what they do is that the department combines um, the Princeton-style research. Uh, it applies the qualitative policy analysis on behalf of educational media. And it actually hires one of the Rocky Mountain Radio Council people um, to bu- help build best practices in uh, radio you know, broadcasting, educational radio broadcasting. His name's Robert Hudson. So the Illinois department and the concept for that spreads and they begin to build communications departments all over the country, which are then in symbiosis once again with the non-commercial media practices. So you have this public media practice, proto public media practice, and you have communications research in there together uh, for a while. And in 49, they, in Illinois, they have something they call the Allerton House Seminars. And it's, it's kind of like, a um, you know, we all have our conferences, you know, and we all know what that's like. But they bring together everyone from the 1930s again and their students. And they say, how can we begin to just do nonprofit broadcasting without any income? <laughs> we still want to keep it nonprofit, but we, we only are subject to the whims of the philanthropic groups and what university funding we get, whereas they're making just millions and millions and billions of dollars through advertising in mass media in a commercial way. And they come up with this concept, which they call the bicycle network by the end of that conference. And it's essentially the Rocky mountain radio council concept of printing records. And uh, uh, the stipulation was that you couldn't keep a broadcasting license unless you had a certain number of hours per day continuously, but they couldn't always find the talent in rural South Dakota, for example, to do that. So they could lose their license still. So they start to just produce records in Wisconsin, Ohio State, Illinois, uh, WNYC in New York played a major part of this. Uh, and they are then circulating them from school to school for $2 a record. <laughs> and they call them program transcriptions. And you get this auspice of what we would now associate with public media genres, so you have a home economics show, but it's now there's humor within it and there's conversations within it and there's guests within it. You know, you have history shows and the history shows are narrative based, not just fact listing. Uh, you know, you have um, so all these approaches that also end up becoming not just public media, but cable television, all these like individual channels and cable that are focused on what were originally poorly um, drawn uh, distance learning concepts for classroom extension services that are now educational entertainment versions of the exact same genres. And by 1952-53, if you talk to people in the public media industry, the non-commercial media industry, they point to that moment, the Bicycle Network, as the founding of public media because there was a standardized shared set of programs that people actually wanted to listen to more than before, at least, that were similar to how the networks distributed programming. And uh, at the same time, that programming was so uh, effective, and now they had the data that they could produce uh, to show that it was effective, that when the next major media policy came in 52, uh, which was the allocations of television channels, almost exactly the same as radio in 34, but now for television, Uh, The FCC had data on hand to 
deliberate in favor of protected frequencies, and they actually win 11.7% of future television allocations uh, for non-commercial media. And because that happens, and the um, precedent of the Rockefeller funding from the 30s, uh, Ford Foundation steps in, which is newly getting in this game of philanthropic funding, and puts the equivalent of just billions and billions of dollars into research and development for really about 15 years, and even beyond that, into television. And one of the things they do is they start actually hiring people who had worked in educational media administration in the 1930s. So you get University of, uh, of Chicago President Robert Hutchins, who had uh, also had an experiment in Chicago called the University Broadcasting Council. And he becomes the head. He's very interested in this working. And you get uh, the students of people from the 1930s who are then beginning to stock the Ford Foundation's educational television uh, initiative. So by 52, they are, and they call it the sixth report in order. That was the new policy. Uh, they have this victory where non-commercial media has the research, it has the funding, it has the channels, uh, it has infrastructure at universities and the support of universities, um, and it has public interest in the post-war era to mitigate fascism through non-commercial broadcasts intended to um you know, inform and give us better understandings of the world. And of course, there's a lot of contradictions within that um, that others have written about. Uh, but uh, you have this auspice of something like a non-commercial media mission statement that emerges. You have a media industry that is derived from a non-profit educational logic. Instead of a media industry producing education content, you have educators that emerged into a media industry of a kind that's decentralized and kept this philosophy of equal access to education um, through the nonprofit guys. Yeah, well, Josh, thank you so much for explaining that to us. Uh, it's been a great conversation. There are so many uh, good things I'd love to talk about. It's a great book. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we've uh, probably taken up uh, a lot of your time at this point. Uh, but before we go, why don't you share a little bit about what's next for you? So uh, we've, <laughs> we're working on a whole bunch of grants with the Library of Congress, uh, I am writing the official history, put that in scare quotes, the official history of NPR and PBS for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting with my colleague Allison Perlman at University of California, Irvine. And I'm working on a third book, on um, which is another archive history on the arc of research and development history in mass media. Very cool. Those sound like some amazing projects. And yeah, I look forward to to digging into them uh, next time. Uh, so that's all uh, for us today, folks. Once again, you've been listening to Josh Shepard talk about his wonderful new book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, published uh, this year by the University of Illinois Press. I strongly encourage you to uh, go out, buy the book. Uh, you won't regret it. Josh, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. All right. Have a good one, everybody.